Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. All right. Well, we're in a series on Proverbs where we are discussing wisdom for living and uh, our series is titled Feast or Famine, which comes out of Proverbs chapter 9. If you're feasting on what uh, God's Word, it's a feast. If not, then you're going to be a whole lot less satisfied and fulfilled. And you're not going to be able to deal with reality well, which is what wisdom is, competently dealing with reality. Uh, and uh, to be wise you got to be able to face reality, and reality is very often hard to face in all categories, life, and you know, we looked last week at money, and money issues is, is, as simple as they seem to be, as prevalent as they are in our lives, you know, we have a really hard time facing some realities as it relates to money, which is a perfect illustration. And this week, we're going to be looking a little bit about marriage and what Proverbs says about a wise marriage and some of the realities we have to face there if we're going to competently deal uh, with reality. And here's the thing. Very few of us, uh, when we got married, were even close to understanding the reality of what we have uh, committed when we said, I do. Uh, Maybe the most reckless words ever said. I do. I remember, um, I mean, here's, if you were, just, just think about it for a second, I'll highlight just the words we said to each other. You know, just words like worse and poorer and sickness and then death. These are the kind of things we discussed. And now listen, I was, I was 22 years old with a perm in my hair, a virgin a desperate one, <laughs> making this kind of commitment. I mean, I was in, it should have been against the law to make a commitment. I mean, it was the first time in my life, and maybe the last time, I think so, that I've ever made a vow of any sort. I mean, who vows? And yet we did it right here, this day. Uh, and it, was, it only took a year. It took about a year for Gail to have her bags packed and be uh, down, and we were in a, at the time in a, uh, in a high-rise condo, and she was down in the parking garage on the phone with her father, getting a plane ticket to fly home and leave within a year. My father had to come over, sit down in the living room with us, and I remember that conversation while she was down 11 stories below me. My father was talking to me. He said two words to me, and I'll never forget him. You idiot. That's what he said, and I'll never forget him. And I remember after that conversation that I went down there, realized I wasn't very wise, and I certainly didn't know what was before me. And so, uh, of course, we figured things out, but it was a long process, long, long process. So, of course, uh, Proverbs 
it's going to have us face reality on a few things. And I, I, I jotted down that uh, my statement would sound something like this in terms of what I would think Proverbs is saying to us. Proverbs gives two very powerful and radical postures, two postures. Uh, within the covenant of a marriage that are profoundly practical and ultimately fulfilling. Okay, so prof- powerful and radical postures, two of them. Uh, and they are friends and lovers. They are friends and lovers. That's, the, that's what the proverb, what the writer of Proverbs envisions for our marriages. And here's the text. You can see in the context of of an adulterous situation, uh, father is encouraging his son to be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words. And here's what it says: "Because what is she? What happens? She forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, which essentially, in one, gives you the whole context for marriage, which is a covenant that you have made with God. So that is the context by which friends and lovers." have to operate. Um, but, she, but there it says, forsakes the companion of her youth. And the word companion means friend, best friend, personal friend. And then in Proverbs chapter 5, let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. And then there is lovers. Friends and lovers is how Proverbs sort of envisions what's going on in this thing. Now, what kind of friendship are we talking about, and what do we mean by friends? Because I tell you, I wish I would have known this early, and it took a long time to develop it. Uh, And it takes a person who loves God to really start to see their marriage in terms of friendship the way it ought to be seen. And uh, C.S. Lewis says this about friendship. We can have erotic love and friendship for the same person. Yet in some ways, nothing is less like a friendship than a love affair. So he's trying to distinguish the the difference. Lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever talk about friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other, Friends are side by side, absorbed in some common goal. So he distinguishes the two postures. He says, friends look in the same direction. Lovers look at each other. They look toward one another. So there's your two postures. Now, these postures, one is shoulder to shoulder, heading in the same direction, eyes up, away from each other. They're not even necessarily toward each other. They got some bigger aim they're both moving toward. And then there's the face-to-face. In other words, at no, at, <laughs> we're, looking toward e- not look, we're looking toward each other. And that's the context for marriage within a marriage covenant, as the writer sees it, and a wise marriage. And there, there's... There's spiritual postures and practices that come out of this that make a marriage wise. Uh, Here's why the two postures are powerful. They're powerful because uh, 
you have a purpose that's bigger than you. See, in both of them, neither of them, of those postures, uh, from your standpoint, are you the main thing. It's either your, your partner or where you're headed, not you. And if, and if in, in, in any way, and we all know this if you've been married for any length of time, if any way those postures get set up to where I become the center of that, this, this thing will slowly disintegrate and break down. So we got to watch that self-centered view. All right? It's a look away, it's a look out, and it's a look towards someone. So that's why it's powerful, because when I'm doing that and I'm not the center of it, and what does it take for you not to be selfish? What does it take for me not to be selfish? Everything we have. It takes everything we have to be moving forward without us at the center and, with, and focusing on someone else without us being the center. That takes a lot of effort and work, and that's transforming, and you got to change, and, and it's a hard process. That's why it's powerful, because it's transforming. And then it's radical because anyone will tell you, and I listened to, I, I watched and listened and read all kinds of sermons, and not even sermons, but some of them uh, just conversations about this subject. And in marriage, historically speaking, I mean, people didn't get married because they, they loved each other. It wasn't until around the turn of the 20th century people started marrying for the concept of love. For most of the time, it was status either social status or economic status. We married because it was, it was smart and it was good for you down the road, but it wasn't because of love. If you wanted a friend, you didn't find your friend in marriage, and you certainly didn't find your lover there. You found him elsewhere. And here's Proverbs and this ancient culture bringing something together that would have blown the minds of the people of that culture, especially that culture. You're actually supposed to be friends and lovers. So let's talk about both of those. Let's talk about friendship first and say a few things about what it means to stand shoulder to shoulder in, in marriage. C.S. Lewis in his uh, Four Loves says this about friendship. Friendship must be about something. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. So for, for him, the idea is if we're going to be friends, that means we're fellow travelers. We're both moving. We're shoulder to shoulder, and we're heading in a particular direction. You say, where are we headed? That's what a marriage has got to have. It's got to know what in the world are we doing together? Well, there's a bigger marriage that we're all heading toward. The Bible starts with a wedding, and it literally ends with a wedding. We're heading toward another wedding. It's, a, it's two humans who get married who are ultimately going to be un, united with God himself. So we start with a wedding, we end with a wedding. United with God. So there's something about our union together that is building toward an even greater union than that. All right? Uh, so marriage becomes not only a picture of transformation and change in who we're going to become, it also becomes part of the process that begins transforming us before we ever get there. Of course, this was probably in none of our minds when we got married. You sort of have to move toward this, especially in our culture. You've got to move toward this. Uh, 
because we're going to be celebrating one day who we, that the fact that we will all be married to Christ and be, a, and be his bride. So Ephesians 5 says things like this. Husbands, you ought to love your wives just like Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her because he wants to sanctify her, cleanse her, wash her with the word that he might present her to himself, the church in all, his, all her glory, no spot, no stain, no wrinkle. That's the goal. That's where we're headed. And so here in Ephesians 5, the two marriages get wedded. The two marriages marry where what God is doing, what's happening with us in our marriage is sort of part of the process of a bigger marriage. Sort of how it looks. And so C.S. Lewis says, there's nothing like two friends who discover they are on the same secret road. And I'm going to tell you that I don't think anything's more profound than a couple who realizes they're both on the same secret road heading somewhere bigger than themselves. Man, if you can do that, let me tell you the kinds of things that become easier. And man, I can tell you that and it, it just, it's, it's really a long road, but it's a secret road that you both are on. And if you can both realize you're on that road, because uh, Proverbs 27, 17 says, what do friends do? They, iron sharpens iron. So imagine what's like in a wedding or in a marriage. Um, and what it does is it gives you both motivation. And I'll tell you, here's uh, what I think at the heart of this is really where the value is. If I know that both of us are headed toward transformation and that's what we've got to become, then, then here's the thing. I'm so much more gentle with your flaws and I'm so much more open to your influence about mine. Because I know neither one of us are where we ought to be. We're on a secret road to be where we want to be. That means you're not who you ought to be. I'm not who I ought to be. And I ought to let you influence me to become something that I'm not. Sharpen the edges. And when I realize how faulty I am, when I look at your faults, I'm not overwhelmed by them. I'm actually very gentle about them. And I don't love seeing you hurt over your flaws. Sometimes in marriage, we just love seeing the other one waller in, in, in the pain of insufficiency or failure. That should never be the case. It should pain us when we see a, because what we're doing shoulder to shoulder is we're fighting together. We're changing together. We're influencing one another cheering each other on, confronting each other. Hey, you can't, you, you can't see things like that and us be healthy. Those kinds of conversations are very hard in marriage, but we got we to gotta have them, and we got to let our partner influence us and say, yeah, you're right, I shouldn't see things that way. I, don't, I know I do. Because you're both building towards something bigger than both of you. It's not me trying to win over you or you trying to win over me. It's him trying to win both of us. And I'm for you to become what he wants you to become. And so I'll never be satisfied that you're not who you ought to be. But I certainly look forward to the day when you will be everything God wants you to be. 
And as a friend, I want to be by your side to help you be that person because probably no one else in the world is going to tell you the things your spouse will tell you. What an incredible vision. And I, we, we, um, and I think there's another thing that comes along with that. It's, it's the, the desire to make the journey as easy for the other one as possible. It's a tough journey. What if we approached our marriages with sort of this idea that we could make the journey just a little easier for each other? What makes the journey a little easier for you, hon? What makes the journey a little easier for you, hon? What do I have to think about? Where do I have to, where do I have to invest? How do I need to speak to you? What do I need to do just to, to make the journey as easy as possible? I think one of the great gifts as spouses we give to each other is how do I make this journey? How do I keep life? How do I keep you as sane and healthy as possible? Okay? Uh, we had a marriage conference here just a little while ago, and one of the conversations we had was on this topic. It was a little different. It was in Song of Solomon, a little different conversation. But I talked, I was, I was forced to actually think about some of the ways that I've changed since I've been married for now. This summer will be 31 years. How have I changed from that sort of permed, desperate virgin who made a vow and had no... Absolutely no good reason to make that vow, except for a great woman, but I want to make sure I get that in there. Um, I can tell you that the things that matter to her matter to me a whole lot more now than they ever did. I remember when the things that she thought about, things she wanted and valued, just looked ridiculous to me. They don't look ridiculous to me anymore. I can hardly now at this stage of life, and most of you know this because many of you have been married longer, I can hardly even think of life anymore as just the way I see it. I mean, both of us, I mean, I now see life the way she sees it on a daily basis, whether I'm parenting or whether I'm out by myself or, you know, that's what happens. So the things that matter to her, um, I've become more of a servant, and I see the value in servanthood. I see the value in actually uh, coming alongside and helping so that both of us aren't so tired at the end of the day. Just pitching in and making sure that we, we, neither one of us is being drained by the other or by life. I wasn't always like that. I wasn't very open to criticism. It still hurts, but I can handle it a whole lot better now. Not dumbfounded by it anymore. Um, I'm definitely gentler with her flaws. I'm less controlling than I used to be. Much of that came from fear and immaturity. I fight for a, for a whole, for far less. And I don't want to be mad anymore. I don't want to be mad. Gil and I fight now. It used to be a time in our relationship where forever, it would take forever for me to get over it. And I made her pay in so many silent ways. It was devastating to our marriage. And, and she used to be the one to always come. And I always try to tell couples, don't wear, your, don't wear your spouse out emotionally. If you're wearing your spouse out emotionally, because you make them do all the work, all the recovery work, you make them do all the work, I'm going to tell you, 
your marriage is going to drain. You're going to drain the life out of somebody. You better be able to say, I'm sorry. You better be able to speak when it's your time to speak. You better say the hard things when it's time for you to do it, or you're going to drain your spouse. And I did that for the longest time, and now I'm, I'm, I try to be the first one to get a fight over with. And our line to each other, this is what we say to each other after some misunderstanding. I don't want to be mad, and I don't want to fight. So let's, let's talk about it. That's how we approach it. It's, our, it's, it's one of our favorite lines to one another. So as friends, shoulder to shoulder, I, I love seeing who Gail has become because Gail has become a different person. Remember what Lewis Smead said? said, I think my wife's been married to about five different men, all of them me, because you're changing all the time, and you're becoming a different person. And it's, it ought to thrill you to see your spouse become more of the person they ought to be. And she definitely has. So let your spouse influence you. Remember you're on a journey together. I mean, what, what's the worst possible scenario is that somehow we're, we're, we're on this path to get the secret road, but I'm trying to bump you off. I'm trying to get ahead of you. That would make no sense. That's not friendship. We're on a secret road together. And I want to make sure you're there. What can I do to make it so that you get there with me? All right. The second thing uh, is the second posture is the face-to-face one. You have shoulder to shoulder, and now you have face-to-face. This is lovers, and this is 5, 15 through 20, where Proverbs, and I'll just, uh, just listen to it. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for a stranger with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? So he's just showing the logic of, of a faithful marriage and what lovers are like. So it's a graphic picture, very erotic, and all of a sudden you've got Proverbs combining two things, very profound relational chemical compound, friends and lovers. So we've always said it, and this is saying it, that sex bodily pictures reenacts concretizes the marital covenant. And it's visualized in Proverbs. In the mechanics of of sexual intercourse comes the whole bonding effect of this covenant in that image. So that sex then becomes something that helps deepen and maintain the very covenant that you made, almost as if designed to constantly reinforce the unity, intimacy, and covenant that you made to one another. That's what it does. Shmuley, Shmuley Botiak, a rabbi, wrote a, a couple of great books. 
on this subject. He's uh, steeped in Judaism. And so he's got a lot of Judaism wisdom, and he's brilliant on this topic. This is what he says about sex in his book called Kosher Sex. It's excellent, by the way. (laughs) Kosher Sex. Uh, Sex is the ultimate bonding process. God, in his infinite kindness, gave a man and a woman who are joined together in matrimonial holiness the most pleasurable possible way to call forth their capacity of joining to another human being and feeling permanently attached. That's what it's for. It reinforces the covenant that you made one time, the vow you made a long time ago to be one. It reinforces it on a regular basis. It's as if the vow is being renewed in your love relationship. Now, let's talk about the imagery here of water. Drink water from your own cistern. Because uh, I think there's a couple of things that are important here. Uh, in their homes, they had these uh, hewn, uh, hollowed out of a rock, literally, sort of erotically, a pear-shaped, uh, hollowed out in the rock, water for the family. This is where you go get your water. It's right in, in the home. And so he is taking that image and saying, that is where you get your water. Water, obviously a metaphor for intimacy. He's saying you don't go out in the streets. You don't go into the public to get, to be refreshed by that water, to have your thirst quenched. You have your own sort of water spot And so water becomes the image. And I think there are four things that come out of this text as it relates to that water if we're going to have wise marriages. Obviously, the first one is, he says, drink. And the first thing that water ought to be, sex accessible. I mean, if you've built like, like if you've put a lid on that and nobody can get to the water, we're going to have a problem, all right? You're going to see why, okay? So he, he used, he exhausts, the Hebrew writer here, exhausts every word for water, water, well, fountain, spring, streams. I mean, he's trying to say there ought to be plenty of water there, and it ought to be accessible. And so I did some research this week because I've done some reading on it in the past because of, for counseling purposes, on the sexless, and the sex-starved marriage. And of course, there are times when there are very serious issues when it comes to sex. So I don't want to act like there are not significant things as it relates to this. But for the average couple who could easily have a decent sex life, it's not because this is something that is bigger than both of them, abuse, or other things that have happened in our past that make that difficult, we got to get help for those kinds of things. But it's amazing how little sex is encouraging marriage. More than for singles, singles boast about sex far more than they're actually doing it. All the studies show that. Married people are having more than them, but that's not necessarily saying a lot in some respects. And so you got married couples 
who are pretty much, when it comes to this, uh, keeping the imagery, dehydrated. There's very little water. And you're getting all kind of kidney stones as a result of this. But what he's trying to say is something's definitely lost if there's no water in there and you're not getting to the water. Something's lost in that. Uh, I know counseled plenty of couples for years and years and years. Somewhere along the line, they stopped having sex, never talked about it. Never even talked about it. And then there are those who can hardly talk about it, the sexlessness in their marriage, because somebody can't handle it. And they can't have a conversation about it. Um, and I want to say something to, to both sexes here on that. I want to say something to, to women first in the research that I have done on this topic and the counseling that I have done on this topic. Ladies, I will tell you that very often uh, the wonderful thing about uh, a woman is she does not have to be aroused to have sex. A man obviously does. So a, a woman has, has the ability to say yes to it even if she isn't aroused. It's, that's a great gift. Thank you, Lord, that, I, that we don't both take blue pills. Thank you, Lord. So when it comes to your mood and your desire and all of those kind of things, uh, read a study that talked about the arousal cycle for a woman. And, you know, the, the arousal cycle usually starts with desire, then moves to arousal, and then moves to orgasm, and then moves to restoration, which is the resting state after. Well, for women, many women, arousal has to happen first. The desire isn't necessarily there, but if they'll allow themselves to enter into it, the desire often comes after the arousal, arousal not before. And so just because you're not in the mood or just because you're not necessarily aroused doesn't mean you can't start. Arousal often moves you to the point of desire, which gives you a whole different perspective. You don't necessarily have to have that desire first. It can come after. Just want to say that to you. Uh, you can be receptive even though you're not necessarily in the mood. Okay? It's not all the time. I'm not saying all the time. I'm, you know. Uh, then I want to say something to men because here's the best. This is what I've learned is the best kept secret when it comes to these things. More and more and more and more men have lost desire for sex. And it just continues to happen more and more and more. And uh, they're fast catching up to ladies, at least as cultural sees it. And a lot of it, tons of different reasons. Uh, but guys, I want to tell you something. If your wife has questioned you on it, like where are you? Where have you been? What's up? Or what isn't? I'm just going to say, listen, what's happening? That's an important bid for you because you just say, eh, I'm not in the mood. It must not be that big a deal. You don't usually need it as a high need. Maybe not, but maybe you do. Either way, 
You're depriving her. And I want to tell you what happens. We could spend all day long telling you what happens to a man's psyche if you deny him so much that he becomes sex-starved. But we could also talk about what happens to a lady when she doesn't feel attractive anymore or she doesn't feel desired or she wonders what you're doing and she starts to feel insecure. Because the worst thing you can happen in your marriage is your wife be insecure. And so Song of Solomon, chapter 7, and verse 10, is, a, is an incredible verse here. Let me see if I can find it. She says this, I am my beloved's. And normally she says, and he is what? Mine. That's not what she says here. She says, and his desire is for me. She's not necessarily, necessarily sex crazed, but she loves knowing that her husband wants her. And if somehow your libido has dropped and desire has waned, she's going to feel that in some level, and it will impact your marriage in some level. So, you breed insecurity. You've got to at least be talking about. Proverbs, or 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if you're not having sex, you ought to be praying with each other in its place. That's how significant it is in 1 Corinthians 7. So, here's my point on this one here. The water needs to be accessible and the water needs to be flowing. That means whatever you have to do outside of the marriage to make it healthy enough for sex to be enjoyable, you better figure that out because it's usually sex is just a barometer about the rest of the relationship. Most people report being a little frustrated, a little unloved, feeling unloved, a little uh, uh, disconnected from their spouse if it's not happening because one person's desire has gone away a little bit. It matters. And in this book, it's saying it matters. It's got to be accessible. Oh, my Lord. We're way, 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 way off. Let me see if I can get through this quick now. Um, the second thing it ought to be is satisfying. It says, um, drink water, verses 19 and 20. Can you put that up there for me, verses 19 and 20? Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Delight. Intoxicated, literally intoxicated. That's drunk. That's the literal the word means go astray. It's like you ought to get sexual DUIs every now and then in your, I mean, this is, this is almost saying, this is almost saying it's okay to be a little naughty. Such a great verse. It's okay to be a little naughty. Uh, I know, <laughs> the, the, so you gotta, you gotta, this is an area of your life that you can, you literally can spice up. You can learn something. You can try something. Uh, I know we had a, uh, in mops here, not long ago, we had a sex therapist, a lady sex therapist came into the moms and talked to them. She gave them literally four pages of information on that. And you're all going, I want my wife in mops because this thing was amazing. <laughs> we went home and I said, this lady's smart. <laughs> I memorized it. I've memorized all four sheets. Gail and I talked about every little thing on here. And, and it was so much fun. I'm telling you, getting mops is what I'm. Is basically what I'm saying. Okay, so uh, real quickly, uh, just because of time, I just want to say, ladies, um, this is very easy for you. This is so much easier for you to spice up than guys. There, there's, you know, guys. But ladies, you, all you have to do is say something, just a little dirty, just a little dirty. 
he can't think for the rest of the day straight. He can't. Or all you have to do is, is, is you either say something or show something. And he can't concentrate for the rest. It's so easy for you. You don't have to be in the mood, nothing. You just say something or show something. He's nuts. He can't even. All right. Then, guys, I will say to you, you got to be a little bit, a little bit. You got to create an environment a little bit more that starts the whole. That's every. Listen, for, for a woman, you got one. Let me just put it this way. For guys, you have to think of sex in terms of a, a whole lot larger than, than the act itself. You got to be helpful. You got to be sensitive. You got to be talkative. You got to do all those kinds of things. You come bumbling out of the bathroom at night, having not done any of those things with all the finesse of a John Deere tractor, and you expect your wife to just be ready to go. No, you got to work a little harder than that. God has rigged sex so that you have to work hard. He just has rigged it that way. You want it the worst, work the hardest. That's how God's rigged it. And ladies, the, for you, you, you just have to be willing and you will change his life. He's got a romance. And if you'll both do that, then you know what happens? Let me just put it to you this way. Let me put it to you in a spiritual context. By doing those two things for each other, you literally stretch your character through your sexual relationship. You become more of what God wants you to become. Men, when you love your wife in all the ways that she wants you to love her. And ladies, you do the same thing with these selfless acts that build your marriage. It doesn't just make the bedroom better. It makes your character better when you're willing to do both those things for each other. Uh, all right, I'll skip some of that and go to the third one. Contained. I'll do this one quick. Uh, so it's accessible, it's satisfying, and it's contained. Sometimes this water, as he talks about this water moving, this moving water, this water's moving really hard and you create a tsunami. And I'm just going to tell you that you got a lot, you got, you got, Water's a powerful force. And for each one of you married, there's only one watering hole. There's only one watering source. You can't get it anywhere else. You're not supposed to be looking at it. There's no legitimate way to get the need because it's, it's got to be contained. Why, he says, should your water go out into the streets and get contaminated and muddy why would you drink from waters other people are drinking from? No, you have your own water. And culture is filled with it. We've got a culture that overvalues sex. We've got marriages that undervalue it. And we're both vulnerable. And it's, it's got to stay contained, which means all the sexual energy you guys have for a lifetime has to go to one person, has to be on one person. That means you've got to protect your eyes. You've got to protect everything about what water sources you let in your life because they'll poison it. That's all I'm going to say about that for the moment. But... I mean, you got to be sensitive to each other. I ought to be sensitive to the fact that you only have one watering source. You can't go legitimately anywhere else to get that need fulfilled. Not in your mind, not anywhere. 
I ought to be really sensitive and more protective of my marriage because I think about this topic. And then finally, it's blessed. He says, let the fountain, let your fountain, here's God blessing it. Let your fountain be blessed. It's accessible, it's satisfying, it's contained, and it's blessed by God. All I wrote down for that is, it ought to be something uplifting. It ought to be seen as something godly in your home that you work to become a better lover as part of your discipleship and part of the journey to become the person you ought to become. And so this text has given us uh, a, way of, a way of giving us freedom and responsibility toward our spouse in this regard. Yeah, I'll just close by saying you this. You know, Ephesians 5 sort of hinted at the fact that the gospel really helps us become better lovers. I mean, God is on a journey with us to make us what we ought to be. That's the same journey we are in marriage. We are in a marriage. He was willing to get married to us. I mean, that's a marriage from hell. Isn't it? Putting up with us spiritually, and yet he's going to walk with us all the way to the end of this thing. That's because of Jesus Christ and what he's done. His love is amazing. That kind of love for you is what motivates the kind of love we're describing here in Proverbs. Father, thank you for this word, and I pray that in some way, shape, or form, it encourages our our homes, our hearts, and that our our marriages would would be better because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.